0: Well, this year, uh, Corey and I started getting into a show called Sneaky Pete. Anyone seen Sneaky Pete? It's on Amazon Prime. It's not the greatest show. But in this show, it stars this this guy who is a con man. His name is Marius, and he's in prison after a run-in with the FBI. Uh, And he gets in trouble because he's running a con at a high-stakes illegal poker game. And uh, the mob boss who runs this poker game finds out that he's being conned by Marius. And the only way to escape certain death as he breathes down the barrel of, the, of the, uh, the mob's gun, is to turn himself over to the FBI, who's there on scene also. And so he goes to prison, and while he's in prison, he has this goody-two-shoes cellmate, uh, Pete, who, um, you know, this guy just got in with the wrong crowd and got a lot of prison time, and so, but he's constantly talking about his grandparents and how he loved when he was a kid to go to his grandparents' house and how there's this apple tree by the pond and how his grandfather's laugh sounded and everything about his family and it would drive Marius crazy until his parole comes up and it's time for Marius to be released. But basically by being released from prison, he's about ready, it's a death sentence because the mob's going to know he's getting released and they're going to off him as soon as he gets out of prison. And so what does he do? He takes on the identity of Pete. And he goes to his grandp- his, Pete's grandparents' house and impersonates him because Pete had not seen his grandfather and his grandparents in 20 years. And so Marius goes under the, the, uh, the identity of Pete and says, I'm your long-lost grandson. And being a con man, he just knows how to kind of fit into the family, and it's really an interesting uh, story. Now, you may be thinking, why does our pastor like show about con people? Um, I was thinking that myself. It's not the crime necessarily or the immorality that's attractive to me. It's, it's the other things, the quick thinking, the way that this guy is able to see beneath the little, um, the, the words that people say, to see their little tells and their ticks and what they're really like on the inside. In short, he's able to see who people are and how they operate, As you'd imagine, Pete encounters all kinds of obstacles by trying to impersonate a person from a small town, and he's constantly having to think and negotiate and be strategic in what he says. Well, the text we're rooted in this evening involves a similar story, a con job, really, quick thinking. And the strangest thing is about this story is that Jesus is the one who tells it to us. Would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, Verses one through thirteen. Now he was he was saying to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was it was reported to him as squandering his possessions, and he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me the account books of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking away the management, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to the other, uh, or to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light and i say to you make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails they will receive you into eternal dwellings he who is faithful in very little in a very little thing is faithful also in much And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous or worldly wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Lord, what a strange text you've given us. We trust that because Jesus said it, there's good news in it. And by the power of your spirit, I pray you would help us to find it tonight. Amen. Maybe may be seated. So I'm 43, and I've been going to church on and off probably since I was a baby. So for 43 years of going to church— And 16 years in pastoral ministry, I have never heard nor preached on this passage before. It's just a strange one. Part of my motive for preaching it at all is that Jesus taught it. It's what's next in our series in Luke, so I'm not going to skip it. And because Jesus taught it, it must be important. And in some sense, I hope that these sermons on hard passages uh, can be a reference to you. Someday, maybe you're leading a Bible study, and you come to this passage, and you're like, I think Chris preached on this one time. But you can look in the audio archives, and there's a reference for you, all right? Okay, so let's dig into this text, because it is, it's strange. Uh, We're introduced to two men, a wealthy man and his manager or his steward. Same, Same difference. We know from the story that the wealthy man is a landowner of agricultural property. And as was standard practice in the ancient world, he had a steward who was in charge of the day-to-day operations of the property. Now, that would include everything from hiring workers to leasing acreage to farmers who would work the land and then pay a percentage of the produce as rent to the landowner. In a world without banks, people secured lands and paid their debts through agricultural products, olive oil, wheat, animals, and textiles, the things that you can make with those things. The most important thing for us to remember is that in the system described in the parable, the steward was the agent of the master. Meaning, when people interacted with the manager or the steward, it was as if they were interacting with the master himself. When functioning as the agent, the steward held the same authority of the master over the master's belongings and over the master's employees and over the master's debtors. Okay? That's just the way it worked in the ancient world. Somehow, word gets out to the master that the steward had been squandering his estate. Does that sound familiar? Anyone going through the prodigal son story last few weeks? Younger son squanders the estate. Okay, so he summons the steward and says, What is this I hear about you? Give me your account books or an, uh, an accounting of your management. Let's pause right there so we don't miss something. Two important details. First, According to the culture and customs of this time and place in the parable, the master is not asking for information. He's not saying like, hey, what's up? What have I heard? He's already made up his mind. In fact, the text says that he's fired him. You can no longer be manager. So that's the first fact. The second, without a doubt, the expected response would be for the steward to argue his case. Kenneth Bailey draws on ancient and contemporary Middle Eastern sources to show that there were three basic responses a man in the steward's position could have. Three basic responses. Number one, he could appeal to his family relationship to the master's family. I've done, I've done wrong, but consider my father who worked for your father and my grandfather who worked for your grandfather. We've been with you for so long and served you faithfully. Give me another chance. That's one option. Number two, he could call these anonymous accusers and, uh, and have them confront them right in front of the master. Who are these people bringing accusations against me? Let's have it out right in front. Let's, let's argue the case. Or number three, he could appeal to his friends of good reputation to be character witnesses for him. But Kenneth Bailey says, and other scholars say, under no circumstances it, is it conceivable that the steward would do nothing you negotiate, you negotiate. Instead, he does something quite unexpected. He says nothing. As we'll see, his silence is part of his strategy. If he had exercised option one, two, or three, news of his firing would have been made public. His authority would have been stripped instantly. But as it happens, his silence, while incriminating him in that private meeting with his master, there's no doubt that he's guilty, it still allowed him a few precious hours to concoct a plan, a way to get out of this situation. So he thinks about his option. Years in management has made him soft and weak. He doesn't want to go dig ditches. He's also got a little too much pride to go beg, so he's not going to do that. And then he comes up with a scam, a con, a con that will ensure his security and maybe a job as the steward of some of the other noble families in town. So he summons his master's debtors. These are wealthy men who are leasing lands from the master. At the end of each harvest, they would pay their debts or reinvest for the following year. But in this story, the steward calls them in for a mid-season consultation. As far as they know, the steward is still the agent of the master, word hasn't gotten out yet to the community. So he calls the first one in, and the grammar suggests that he calls them in one by one for a private one-on-one meeting. That is important, because if they're in a room together, they may pick up on each other's cues. What's going on here? And look sideways at each other. I remember the time Corey and I were traveling back from Europe. We were in the uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle airport, and uh, they wanted to ask us questions about uh, our citizenship. And so Instead of asking us together, they put us in separate rooms, right, to, to make sure our stories matched up. Thankfully, it nothing to hide, right? Or they didn't find out. But anyway, uh, so that, that, that's what you do when you want to you isolate people to, to stay in control of the situation. And by doing that, he's able to read them individually how much are they willing to go, and, and what, what's a fair amount to relieve. So the first one comes in, and the steward asks how much he owes. Did you catch that? The steward asks the debtor, how much do you owe? The steward has the account books. He doesn't need to ask the debtor how much he owes. This is a psychological move. You know, a lot of us live with mortgages or other kinds of debt, right? I I pay a mortgage on our house. But it it becomes autopilot. I pay X amount of dollars every month. Very rarely do I say I owe $200,000. It's it's horrible to say that out loud. And so by having the debtors say what the steward already knows, like, oh, I, I owe I a owe hundred measures of oil. That's 875 U.S. gallons of olive oil. That's three, just over three years of wages that this person owed to, uh, to the master. So by saying it out loud, the, uh, the land, the, the, the debtor has this sense of, I'm in real debt here. Then, Like a master con man, the the steward says, tell you what, quickly, quickly, because time's running out, anytime the master could come and take my books away, quickly, with your own handwriting, so it can't be disputed that I judge the books, with your own handwriting, write 50 instead of 100. Slash the dude's debt in half. Then he lets him out, calls the next guy in, how much do you owe? I owe 100 cores of wheat. What does that mean? Seven and a half years of labor, of wages, that's how much that is. That's how much that is. It's a, it's a stu- staggering amount. And he says, quickly, in your own handwriting, write 80 instead of 100. So now he's slashed his debt. We can only imagine that the steward was able to slash the debts of others uh, because in these types of stories, they're, they're abbreviated, that, you know, they're, they're, they're shortened uh, for, for time's sake. But in the end, the master finds out what the steward has done, slashing the debts of these people who owed him money. And what does he do? He praises him. Why? Why does he praise him? Well, here's how this would have played out. Because the steward acted as the agent of the master, the debtors left the steward's office thinking that the master was the most generous person they had ever encountered. And second, they would have then shared their savings with the community through a great celebration in honor of the master. Finally, when news breaks out that the steward is fired, his reputation among the other land leasers would be positive, not negative. He would be able to find a position in one of their households for being shrewd and savvy. So the master now is in a tight spot. He's found out what his steward has done. He's lost revenue because the steward has slashed the debtor's prices. But there's literally, out in the town square, a party going on in his honor. And they're all singing and drinking to his good health and his praises, thinking him to be the most generous man on earth. Was he now to break it all up and take the money back, claiming while the steward was already fired and blah, 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 he would be the villain and the steward would become the misunderstood hero And either way, the steward wins. It's the long con. Now, he sees his only real move is to maintain his honor and his glory and to receive that praise from the crowds while awkwardly smirking at a steward saying, like, nice move, dude. We're both blessed now because of your shrewdness. So that's the parable. Parable it's pretty straightforward when you get behind the cultural context the hard thing to square for many interpreters including this one is why would jesus tell this parable like it's a great there's lots of ancient stories like this in greek literature and in latin um uh, and in 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 uh, asian cultures as well there's lots of you know aesop's fables have stories very similar to this one moral tales or just funny tales You could see Chaucer coming up with something like this, but but why Jesus? Why is Jesus telling us this weird, corrupt, immoral story? Are we supposed to emulate the con man in the story? Absolutely not. You heard it here. I'm not saying that. So what is the point? What is the point? Well, Jesus is operating under the assumption that there are two colliding worlds. There's the present age the age of sin and death, the age that the Bible often talks about as calling the world. Don't be like the world. Be in the world, not of the world. That's the world, the present age. It's human society surrounding itself around anything but God, whether that's our our politics or our finances or our love life or any other God that's not the big G God is the world. It's the cutthroat world of kill or be killed, it's me first, it's a world of, of our advertising that, that lives on our fears and anxieties, it's the world uh, that seeks comfort first and security first, it is a me first world, okay? And then there's the age to come, what we call, what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. It's, it's creation in orbit around God and his ethics, In the kingdom, there's no scarcity. There's no fear that I won't have enough so I can just keep giving and giving and giving. There's no death. There's no fear. Love reigns. The economic system is built on giving away resources because you simply can't run out. It's a kingdom of generosity. The kingdom or the the present age and the age to come. These worlds are on a collision course. And this, this one, the age to come, is going to usurp. The present age. Now, the message that Jesus brought and that the apostles preached, and what we continue to preach, um, because we do apostolic preaching, this is the preaching the words of the apostles and Jesus, right? What they preached is that the kingdom of God, the age to come, is breaking in. It's forcibly breaking its way into our world. And the job of the church is to be a living witness to this reality. We're called to live in a time when the present age is still dominant and in effect, but our behavior is supposed to reflect the age to come. It's a really weird spot to be in because right now there really is scarcity and there really is pain and death. And we really are fools for Christ if we live as though the present age were here, in, or that the age to come is here in the present age. But that's exactly what the call of the church is to be to be foolish for Christ, to live as though the age to come is already bearing on you and I. So in this example, Jesus is saying, Church, Just like the steward in the story of the con man, the people of this age know how to do what it takes to thrive in their environment. Like this guy, he wasn't right, but he knew how to make the most of his situation in the present age. But the children of light, that's disciples of Jesus, they aren't as savvy as living in the world to come and the age to come. The people of the present age know how to leverage their money and their power and their influence to advance their agendas. And the church needs to do better at leveraging their resources for the agenda of the kingdom. So when Jesus says, make friends for yourself by means of mammon or wealth of unrighteousness, he isn't advocating that we become unrighteous. All throughout the Bible, we're warned about the corrupting influence of money and wealth. The word mammon is not merely money but any material items that we place our trust in whether it's cash or property or power any of those things jesus calls us to see mammon or worldly wealth as a tool to advance the kingdom as a resource we can use to bless other people just as the con man is looking to leverage every advantage to his cause so we are to be on the lookout for how we can steward God's resources to bless other people. In the parable, the unrighteous steward looks out for himself, and in the con, he ends up giving his master a good reputation. How are we investing our resources to give Jesus a better reputation? Does anyone look at our, uh, our lives and give glory to God because of the way we've invested ourselves, our time, our time? and our energy, and our finances, our networks. The clear point of the teaching, and what brings it into focus, is Jesus' follow-up verses 10 through 13. He states a proverbial truth. The one who is faithful in small things will be faithful in larger things. The one who is unrighteous in small things is also unrighteous in larger things. Character is based on ethical muscle memory. Little white lies lead to covering our tracks and larger lies. Small acts of kindness and generosity lead us to have a disposition, a way of being that is kind and generous. Notice that the con man in the story, when confronted with his mismanagement, doesn't come clean and repent, Instead, his ethical muscle memory leads him to instinctively get out of trouble by lying more and conniving more deeply. You and I are literally on this planet with the primary purpose of stewarding God's resources. If you've ever wondered, like, what am I here for? That's what it is, number one. You are created in God's image, meaning that you and I are His agents. We're His agents. And you've been given massive amounts of resources to manage for the glory of God and the good of other people. For example, you might be thinking, well, I'm pretty strapped on cash. I don't really have anything. What resources are you talking about? You've been given agency over your mind and over your body. You are fearfully and wonderfully made how are you caring for your body like if we're agents of this thing that is supposed to be used to bless others I'm totally like saying all the examples that I'm convicted about by the way so I'm not like preaching at you I'm right with you Um, how much sleep are you getting so that we can be effective for the kingdom new parents by the way get a free pass for this one (laughs) are you eating well and exercising? Are you stimulating your mind by growing professionally in your vocation or by taking your schoolwork seriously if you're a student or by meditating on the Word of God? Are you intentionally a blessing to those God has put you in relationship with, whether that be family or physical neighbors or your work associates? Like God is, He's gifted us with with people and relationships. And I so often go through life on autopilot. How intentional are we being at being a blessing to them? And what about money? Jesus talks about it all the time because it has such a hold on our hearts. It's tied to all of our vices from power and pleasure to security and freedom. If our money is truly God's money and we are stewarding it for him, then how would it be to give an accounting of our expenditures even our savings what would he see what would god see what would he see if he saw what you were spending your money on and what might he say if he saw what you were not spending your money on are you giving 10 percent of your income at the place where you gather for worship are you regularly giving toward those in need so that we can bless them through our kindness and generosity. And if we claim to follow Jesus, then we're technically living as though we are in a different age. We don't live by the world's values of selfishness. So what is the motivation then to give of our hard-earned money? I think the Bible and the passage has at least three reasons. One, the disciples of Jesus recognize that our money is not our money. And our possessions are God's possessions. That's pretty clear in Scripture. Second, we're to be generous because people are in need. We live in a world of suffering, and part of our vocation as disciples is to be agents for good and beauty in the world. Like That's one of our primary callings, no matter what your actual job and vocation and family situation is. That's one of our main things. In fact, when you see what happens when when people are converted to Christ and the Spirit fills them, you get a a, a snapshot of what Marcia read in the book of Acts chapters 4 and 5. You get people gathering together and taking care of the needs of the community so that there were no poor among the gathered church. You get this dude Barnabas selling tracts of land because he had extra and, and, and doing ministry with it. You get generosity. And the third thing is that the, And the foundation for all of this is the fact that we aren't losing anything when we give it away. In fact, we're investing wisely. When we're generous with little, our earthly possessions, we're investing in eternity. Because the God of the universe sees and rewards our generosity. It's truly, in the best sense of the word, the long con. It looks like we're losing, but in light of the eternal kingdom of God, we'll have the joy of bringing honor and glory to our master. And there, there's not going to be any need. If generosity causes any suffering or discomforts or prevents us from doing some of the things we might want to do in this life, the long con is that we have eternity in an economy of abundance where we will never be in lack and never be in want. Now, I am convicted by this passage. There's no doubt about it. You have to have Uh, if you have a pulse, you are somehow convicted by something that Jesus is bringing out in this. But I have three pieces of good news I want to bring to light, I think is, is in this text. The first thing is this, that Jesus loves us enough to teach us hard things because he wants us to truly live. You have to remember that in the Greek text, there are no chapter divisions or those crafty little headings that say things like, the prodigal son or, or the unrighteous steward, none of that is there until the 4th, 5th, 6th century AD. It's all added by monks and scribes later on. This is all, the book of Luke is one scroll, it's one story. And that means that the prodigal son story that we just spent three weeks covering in chapter 15 is intentionally right on the, is right before this story. Jesus wants us to know how good and how gracious the Father is before He calls us to conviction and action. This is nothing to do with earning God's love. He is just as gracious as the Father who goes out of His way to reconcile the younger son and the older son. So if you feel convicted today, like, oh my gosh, I just got, I don't think about these things very often, I've been sloppy with my resources, take heart. You can come home. It's that same father in the prodigal son story is the same father who is over us when we're convicted by this story. If you're convicted about how much you're working, consider how you might cut a few hours earlier each day or each week to spend time with someone you love that you're nagged by. You're like, I feel guilty that I'm not spending time with this person. The second piece of good news is that even if we have been training our ethical muscle memory to be selfish and greedy more than generous, we can change. That's the promise of this. And, and the way we change is by being faithful to one little thing at a time. So like if you're convicted that, oh man, I'm spending too much money on myself eating out, you don't have to like totally stop eating out. Like what if you just intentionally said, okay, I normally eat out three times a week. What if I did it twice this week and on the third time I eat more cheaply or invite someone else with me and pay for it? Or I give what money I would have spent there to the mission. Or, you know, there's just all kinds of creative ways to be godly. And it's really fun when you start thinking about I don't have to absolutely blow up my life, because that's that's never gonna work, you know? But like being faithful in little things, we can make little choices that lead to big choices and retrain our ethical muscle memory. The final piece of good news is the best of all. All this talk about being shrewd has gotten me thinking about the best long con in all of the world, and that's Jesus. We're not saved because we achieve a certain amount of generosity or give away a certain percentage of our income. We are able to be generous generous because we are rescued. And we're rescued because of the most audacious long con I have ever heard of. The God of the universe decided to be born of a virgin in a small town to a family of little status in a nation occupied by the Roman Empire. This God chose to live among the weak and never claimed his rights and privileges. He gave himself to be crucified, the evil one thinking he had bested God and won the creation for himself now that the prince of heaven was defeated. But little did he know, or did anyone know, that Jesus would be raised on the third day. And in their pride and arrogance, the worldly powers could not conceive of a crucified Jew being of any consequence. And yet, for centuries, Rome itself has been one of the most influential seats of Christian presence in the entire world. Those the world writes off as inconsequential, those dead in their sins, through the long con of Jesus, we have eternal life. Freely we have received. Freely we are called to give. Let's pray. Lord, you gave us a weird one tonight. Um, (laughs) But I thank you that when we do the work, uh, you bear fruit in us. Um, There's some things in this passage I really didn't want to hear. There's things that get under our skin, that convict us for um, our own selfishness, our own fears, and there's cognitive dissonance between how we've been trained by the world to think of our finances and our lives and what you're saying about us and our agency in the world. Holy Spirit, we pray for you to come and take these words and these truths uh, and to make them stick in us and to give us the power to change to rebuild our ethical muscle memory one step at a time, to be more like Christ, to have the disposition of generosity that you so exude. We long to be more like Jesus the Christ.